Chapter Six of Sailing Alone Around the World. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Alan Chant. Sailing Alone Around the World by Joshua Slocum. Chapter Six, consisting of. Departure from Rio de Janeiro, the spray ashore on the sands of Uruguay, a narrow escape from shipwreck, the boy who found a sloop, the spray floated but somewhat damaged, courtesies from the British consul at Maldonado, a warm greeting at Montevideo, an excursion to Buenos Aires. Shortening the mast and bowsprit. On November the twenty-eighth, the spray sailed from Rio de Janeiro, and first of all ran into a gale of wind, which tore up things generally along the coast, doing considerable damage to shipping. It was well for her, perhaps, that she was clear of the land. Coasting along on this part of the voyage, I observed that while some of the small vessels I fell in with were able to outsail the spray by day, they fell astern of her by night. To the spray, day and night were the same; to the others, clearly, there was a difference. On one of the very fine days experienced after leaving Rio, the steamship South Wales spoke the spray, and unsolicited gave the longitude by chronometer. As forty-eight degrees west, as near as I can make it, the captain said, the spray with her tin clock had exactly the same reckoning. I was feeling at ease in my primitive method of navigation, but it startled me not a little to find my position by account verified by the ship's chronometer. On December five, a barkentine hove in sight, and for several days the two vessels sailed along the coast together. Right here, a current was experienced, setting north, making it necessary to hug the shore, which, with the spray, became rather familiar. Here, I confess a weakness: I hugged the shore too close. In a word, at daybreak on the morning of December eleven, the spray ran hard and fast on the beach. This was annoying, but I soon found that the sloop was in no great danger. The false appearance of the sand hills under a bright moon had deceived me, and I lamented now that I had trusted to appearances at all. The sea, though moderately smooth, still carried a swell which broke with some force on the shore. I managed to launch my small dory from the deck and ran out a kedge anchor and warp, but it was too late to kedge the sloop off, for the tide was falling and she had already slewed a foot. Then I went about laying out the larger anchor, which was no easy matter, for my only lifeboat, the frail dory, when the anchor and cable were in it, was swamped at once in the surf, the load being too great for her. Then I cut the cable and made two loads of it instead of one. The anchor, with forty fathoms bent and already buoyed, I now took and succeeded in getting through the surf, but my dory was leaking fast. And by the time I had rowed far enough to drop the anchor, she was full to the gunwale and sinking. There was not a moment to spare, and I saw clearly that if I failed now, all might be lost. I sprang from the oars to my feet, and lifting the anchor above my head, 
threw it clear just as she was turning over. I grasped her gunwale and held on as she turned bottom up, for I suddenly remembered that I could not swim. Then I tried to right her, but with too much eagerness, for she rolled clean over and left me as before clinging to her gunwale while my body was still in the water. Giving a moment to cool reflection, I found that although the wind was blowing moderately towards the land, the current was carrying me to sea, and that something would have to be done. Three times I had been under water in trying to right the dory, and I was just saying, Now I lay me, when I was seized by a determination to try yet once more, so that none of the prophets of evil I had left behind me could say, I told you so. Whatever the danger may have been, much or little, I can truly say that the moment was the most serene in my life. After writing the dory for the fourth time, I finally succeeded by the utmost care in keeping her upright, while I hauled myself into her with one of the oars which I had recovered, paddled to the shore somewhat the worst for wear, and pretty full of salt water. The position of my vessel, now high and dry, gave me anxiety. To get her afloat again was all I thought of or cared for. I had little difficulty in carrying the second part of my cable out, and securing it to the first which I had taken the preparation to buoy before I put it into the boat. To bring the end back to the sloop was a smaller matter still and I believe I chuckled above my sorrows when I found that in all the haphazard my judgment or my good genius had faithfully stood by me. The cable reached from the anchor in deep water to the sloop's windlass by just enough to secure a turn and no more. The anchor had been dropped at the right distance from the vessel. To heave all taut now and wait for the coming tide was all I could do. I had already done enough work to tire a stouter man, and was only too glad to throw myself on the sand above the tide and rest, for the sun was already up and pouring a generous warmth over the land. While my state could have been worse, I was on the wild coast of a foreign country, and not entirely secure in my property, as I soon found out. I had not been long on the shore, when I heard the patter-patter of a horse's feet approaching along the hard beach, which ceased as it came abreast of the sand-ridge where I lay sheltered from the wind. Looking up cautiously, I saw mounted on a nag probably the most astonished boy on the whole coast. He had found a sloop. It must be mine, he thought, for am I not the first to see it on the beach? Sure enough, there it was, all high and dry and painted white. He trotted his horse around it, and, finding no owner, hitched the nag to the sloop's bobstay, and hauled as though he would take her home, but of course she was too heavy for one horse to move. With my skiff, however, it was different, and this he hauled some distance, and concealed behind a dune in a bunch of tall grass. He had made up his mind, I dare say, to bring more horses and drag his bigger prize away anyhow, and was starting off for the settlement a mile or so away for the reinforcement when I discovered myself to him, at which he seemed displeased and disappointed. Buenos dias, muchacho, I said. He grunted a reply, 
and eyed me keenly from head to foot. Then, bursting into a volley of questions more than six Yankees could ask, he wanted to know first where my ship was from, and how many days she had been coming. Then he asked what I was doing here ashore so early in the morning. "'Your questions are easily answered,' I replied. "'My ship is from the moon. It has taken her a month to come, and she is here for a cargo of boys.' But the intimation of this enterprise, had I not been on the alert, might have cost me dearly, for while I spoke, this child of the campo coiled his lariat ready to throw, and instead of being himself carried to the moon, he was apparently thinking of towing me home by the neck, astern of his wild cayuse, over the fields of Uruguay. The exact spot where I was stranded was at the Castillo Chicos, about seven miles south of the dividing line of Uruguay and Brazil, and, of course, the natives there speak Spanish. To reconcile my earlier visitor, I told him that I had on my ship biscuits, and that I wished to trade them for butter and milk. On hearing this, a broad grin lighted up his face, and showed that he was greatly interested, and that even in Uruguay a ship's biscuit will cheer the heart of a boy, and make him your bosom friend." The lad almost flew home, and returned quickly with butter, milk, and eggs. I was, after all, in a land of plenty. With the boy came others, old and young, from neighbouring ranches, among them a German settler, who was of great assistance to me in many ways. A coast-guard from Fort Teresa, a few miles away, also came. "'To protect your property from the natives of the plains,' he said. I took occasion to tell him, however, that if he would look after the people of his own village, I would take care of those from the plains, pointing, as I spoke, to the nondescript merchant who had already stolen my revolver and several small articles from my cabin, which by a bold front I had recovered. The chap was not a native Uruguayan. Here, as in many other places that I visited, the natives themselves were not the ones discreditable to the country. Early in the day a dispatch came from the port-captain of Montevideo, commanding the coast-guards to render the spray every assistance. This, however, was not necessary, for a guard was already on the alert, and making all the ado that would become the wreck of a steamer with a thousand immigrants aboard. The same messenger brought word from the port-captain that he would dispatch a steam-tug to tow the spray to Montevideo. The officer was as good as his word, a powerful tug arrived on the following day, but, to make a long story short, with the help of the German and one soldier and one Italian called Angel of Milan, I had already floated the sloop and was sailing for port with the boom off before a fair wind. The adventure cost the spray no small amount of pounding on the hard sand. She lost her shoe and part of her false keel, and received other damage, which, however, was readily mended afterward in dock. On the following day I anchored at Maldonado. The British consul, his daughter and another young lady, came on board, bringing with them a basket of fresh eggs, strawberries, bottles of milk, and a great loaf of sweet bread. This was a good landfall, and better cheer than I had found at Maldonado once upon a time, when I entered the port with a stricken crew in my bark, the Aquid Neck. In the waters of Maldonado Bay a variety of fishes abound, 
and fur seals in their season haul out on the island abreast the bay to breed. Currents on this coast are greatly affected by the prevailing winds, and a tidal wave higher than that ordinarily produced by the moon is sent up the whole shore of Uruguay before a southwest gale, or lowered by a northeaster, as may happen. One of these waves, having just receded before the northeast wind which brought the spray in, left the tide now at low ebb, with oyster rocks laid bare for some distance along the shore. Other shellfish of good flavour were also plentiful, though small in size. I gathered a mess of oysters and mussels here, while a native with hook and line and with mussels for bait fished from a point of detached rock for bream, landing several good-sized ones. The fisherman's nephew, a lad about seven years old, deserves mention as the tallest blasphemer for a short boy that I met on the voyage. He called his old uncle all the vile names under the sun for not helping him across the gully. While he swore roundly in all the moods and tenses of the Spanish language, his uncle fished on, now and then congratulating his hopeful nephew on his accomplishment. At the end of his rich vocabulary, the urchin sauntered off into the fields, and shortly returned with a bunch of flowers, and with all smiles handed them to me with the innocence of an angel. I remembered having seen the same flower on the banks of the river further up, some years before. I asked the young pirate why he had brought them to me. Said he, I don't know. I only wish to do so. Whatever the influence was that put so amiable a wish in this wild pamper boy, it must be far-reaching, thought I, and potent seas over. Shortly after, the spray sailed for Montevideo, where she arrived on the following day, and was greeted by steam-whistles till I felt embarrassed and wished that I had arrived unobserved. The voyage so far alone may have seemed to the Uruguayans a feat worthy of some recognition, but there was so much of it yet ahead, and of such an arduous nature, that any demonstration at this point seemed somehow like boasting prematurely. The spray had hardly come to anchor at Montevideo when the agents of the Royal Mail Steamship Company, Messrs. Humphrey and Co., sent word that they would dock and repair her freer expense, and give me twenty pounds sterling, which they did to the letter, and more besides. The caulkers of Montevideo paid very careful attention to the work of making the sloop tight. Carpenters mended the keel, and also the lifeboat, the dory, painting it till I hardly knew it from a butterfly. Christmas of 1895 found the spray refitted even to a wonderful makeshift stove, which was contrived from a large oil-drum of some sort, punched full of holes to give it a draught. The pipe reached straight up through the top of the forecastle, even for green wood, and in cold wet days off the coast of Tierra del Fuego it stood me in good stead. Its one door swung on copper hinges, which one of the yard apprentices with laudable pride polished till the whole thing blushed like the brass binnacle of a P&O steamer. The spray was now ready for sea. Instead of proceeding at once on her voyage, however, she made an excursion up the river, sailing December 29. An old friend of mine, Captain Howard of Cape Cod and of River Plate fame, took the trip in her to Buenos Aires, 
where she arrived early on the following day, with a gale of wind and a current so much in her favour that she outdid herself. I was glad to have a sailor of Howard's experience on board to witness her performance of sailing with no living being at the helm. Howard sat near the binnacle and watched the compass, while the sloop held her course so steadily that one would have declared that the card was nailed fast. Not a quarter of a point did she deviate from her course. My old friend had owned and sailed a pilot sloop on the river for many years, but this feat took the wind out of his sails at last, and he cried, "'I'll be stranded on Chico Bank, if ever I saw the like of it!' Perhaps he had never given his sloop a chance to show what she could do. The point I make for the spray here, above all other points, is that she sailed in shoal waters and in a strong current, with other difficult and unusual conditions. Captain Howard took all this into account. In all the years away from his native home, Howard had not forgotten the art of making fish chowders, and to prove this he brought along some fine rockfish and prepared a mess fit for kings. When the savoury chowder was done, chocking the pot securely between two boxes on the cabin floor so that it could not roll over, we helped ourselves and swapped yarns over it while the spray made her own way through the darkness on the river. Howard told me stories about the Fuegian cannibals as she reeled along and I told him about the pilot of the Pinter steering my vessel through the storm off the coast of the Azores, and that I looked for him at the helm in a gale such as this. I do not charge Howard with superstition. We are none of us superstitious. But when I spoke about his returning to Montevideo on the spray, he shook his head, and took a steam packet instead. I had not been to Buenos Aires for a number of years. The place where I had once landed from packets, in a cart, was now built up with magnificent docks. Vast fortunes had been spent in remodelling the harbour. London bankers could tell you that. The port captain, after assigning the spray a safe berth, with his compliments, sent me word to call on him for anything I might want while in port, and I felt quite sure that his friendship was sincere. The sloop was well cared for at Buenos Aires. Her dockage and tonnage dues were all free, and the yachting fraternity of the city welcomed her with a good will. In town I found things not so greatly changed as about the docks, and I soon felt myself more at home. From Montevideo I had forwarded a letter from Sir Edward Hareby to the owner of the standard, Mr. Mulhall, and in reply to it was assured of a warm welcome to the warmest heart, I think, outside of Ireland. Mr. Mulhall, with a prancing team, came down to the docks as soon as the spray was berthed, and would have me go to his house at once, where a room was waiting. And it was New Year's Day, 1896. The course of the spray had been followed in the columns of the standard. Mr. Mulhall kindly drove me to see many improvements about the city, and we went in search of some of the old landmarks. The man who sold lemonade on the plaza when I first visited this wonderful city, I found selling lemonade still at two cents a glass. He had made a fortune by it. His stock in trade was a wash-tub and a neighbouring hydrant, a moderate supply of brown sugar, and about six lemons that floated on the sweetened water. The water from time to time was renewed from a friendly pump, but the lemon went on for ever and all at two cents a glass. 
but we looked in vain for the man who once sold whisky and coffins in Buenos Aires. The march of civilization had crushed him. Memory only clung to his name. Enterprising man that he was, I fain would have looked him up. I remember the tiers of whisky barrels ranged on end, on one side of the store, while on the other side, and divided by a thin partition, were the coffins in the same order, of all sizes and in great numbers. The unique arrangement seemed in order, for as a cask was emptied, a coffin might be filled. Besides cheap whisky and many other liquors, he sold cider, which he manufactured from damaged Malaga raisins. Within the scope of his enterprise was also the sale of mineral waters, not entirely blameless of the germs of disease. This man surely catered to all the tastes, wants, and conditions of his customers. Farther along, in the city, however, survived the good man who wrote on the side of his store, where thoughtful men might read and learn, This wicked world will be destroyed by a comet. The owner of this store is therefore bound to sell out at any price and avoid the catastrophe. My friend, Mr. Mulhall, drove me round to view the fearful comet, with streaming tail pictured large on the trembling merchant's walls. I unshipped the sloop's mast at Buenos Aires, and shortened it by seven feet. I reduced the length of the bowsprit by about five feet, and even then I found it reaching far enough from home, and more than once when on the end of it reefing the jib, I regretted that I had not shortened it another foot. End of chapter 6 Recording by Alan Chant in Tunbridge, Kent, England www.sevenoaksprep.kent.sch.uk Chapter 7 of Sailing Alone Around the World This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Alan Chant Sailing Alone Around the World by Joshua Slocum Chapter 7 Consisting of Weighing Anchor at Buenos Aires an outburst of emotion at the mouth of the plate, submerged by a great wave, a stormy entrance to the strait, Captain Samblick's happy gift of a bag of carpet-tacks, off Cape Froward, chased by Indians from Fortescue Bay, a miss-shot for Black Pedro, taking in supplies of wood and water at Three Island Cove, animal life. On January 26, 1896, the spray being refitted and well provisioned in every way, sailed from Buenos Aires. There was little wind at the start, the surface of the great river was like a silver disk, and I was glad for a tow from a harbour tug to clear the port entrance. But a gale came up soon after, and caused an ugly sea and instead of being all silver as before, the river was now all mud. The plate is a treacherous place for storms. 
one sailing there should always be on the alert for squalls. I cast anchor before dark in the best lee I could find near the land, but was tossed miserably all night, heart-sore of choppy seas. On the following morning I got the sloop under way, and with reefed sails worked her down the river against a headwind. Standing in that night to the place where Pilot Howard joined me for the up-river sail, I took a departure, shaping my course to clear Point Indio on the one hand, and the English bank on the other. I had not for many years been south of these regions. I will not say that I expected all fine sailing on the course for Cape Horn direct, but while I worked at the sails and rigging, I thought only of onward and forward. It was when I anchored in the lonely places that a feeling of awe crept over me. At the last anchorage on the monotonous and muddy river, weak as it may seem, I gave way to my feelings. I resolved then that I would anchor no more north of the Strait of Magellan. On the 28th of January the spray was clear of Point Indio, English Bank, and all the other dangers of the river plate. With a fair wind she then bore away for the Strait of Magellan, under all sail, pressing farther and farther towards the wonderland of the south, till I forgot the blessings of our milder north. My ship passed in safety Bahai Blanca, also the Gulf of St. Matthias, and the mighty Gulf of St. George. Hoping that she might go clear of the destructive tide-races, the dread of big craft or little along this coast, I gave all the capes a berth of about fifty miles, for these dangers extend many miles from the land. But where the sloop avoided one danger, she encountered another. For one day, well off the Patagonian coast, while the sloop was reaching under short sail, a tremendous wave, the culmination it seemed of many waves, rolled down upon her in a storm, roaring as it came. I had only a moment to get all sail down, and myself up on the peak halyards out of danger, when I saw the mighty crest towering masthead high above me. The mountain of water submerged my vessel. She shook in every timber and reeled under the weight of the sea, but rose quickly out of it, and rode grandly over the rollers that followed. It may have been a minute that from my hold in the rigging I could see no part of the spray's hull. Perhaps it was even less time than that, but it seemed a long while, for under great excitement one lives fast, and in a few seconds one may think a great deal of one's past life. Not only did the past, with electric speed, flash before me, but I had time while in my hazardous position for resolutions for the future that would take a long time to fulfil. The first one was, I remember, that if the spray came through this danger, I would dedicate my best energies to building a larger ship on her lines, which I hope yet to do. Other promises, less easily kept, I should have made under protest. However, the incident which filled me with fear was only one more test of the spray's worthiness. It reassured me against rude Cape Horn. From the time the great wave swept over the spray, until she reaped Cape Virgins, nothing occurred to move a pulse and set blood in motion. On the contrary, the weather became fine and the sea smooth and life tranquil. The phenomenon of mirage frequently occurred, 
An albatross sitting on the water one day loomed up like a large ship. Two fur seals asleep on the surface of the sea appeared like great whales, and a bank of haze I could have sworn was high land. The kaleidoscope then changed, and on the following day I sailed in a world peopled by dwarfs. On February 11 the spray rounded Cape Virgins and entered the Strait of Magellan. The scene was again real and gloomy. The wind northeast and blowing a gale sent feather-white spume along the coast. Such a sea ran as would swamp an ill-appointed ship. As the sloop neared the entrance to the strait, I observed that two great tide-races made ahead, one very close to the point of the land, and one further offshore. Between the two, in a sort of channel, through comas, went the spray with close-reefed sails. But a rolling sea followed her a long way in, and a fierce current swept around the cape against her. But this she stemmed, and was soon chirruping under the lee of Cape Virgins, and running every minute into smoother water. However, long trailing kelp from sunken rocks waved forebodingly under her keel, and the wreck of a great steamship smashed on the beach abreast gave a gloomy aspect to the scene. I was not to be let off easy. The virgins would collect tribute even from the spray passing their promontory. Fitful rain squalls from the northwest followed the northeast gale. I reefed the sloop's sails and sitting in the cabin to rest my eyes, I was so strongly impressed with what in all nature I might expect, that as I dozed the very air I breathed seemed to warn me of danger. My senses heard, "'Spray ahoy!' shouted in warning. I sprang to the deck, wondering who could be there that knew the spray so well as to call out her name passing in the dark, for it was now the blackest of nights all around except away in the south-west where rose the old familiar white arch, the terror of Cape Horn, rapidly pushed up by a south-west gale. I had only a moment to douse sail and lash all solid when it struck like a shot from a cannon, and for the first half-hour it was something to be remembered by way of a gale. For thirty hours it kept on blowing hard. The sloop could carry no more than a three-reefed mainsail and foresail, and with these she held on stoutly, and was not blown out of the strait. In the height of the schools in this gale she doused all sail, and this occurred often enough. After this gale followed only a smart breeze, and the spray, passing through the narrows without mishap, cast anchor at Sandy Point on February 14, 1896. Sandy Point, Punta Arenas, is a Chilean coaling station, and boasts about two thousand inhabitants, of mixed nationality, but mostly Chileans. What with sheep farming, gold mining, and hunting, the settlers in this dreary land seem not the worst off in the world. But the natives, Patagonian and Fuegian, on the other hand, were as squalid as contact with unscrupulous traders could make them. A large percentage of the business there was traffic in firewater. If there was a law against selling the poisonous stuff to the natives, it was not enforced. Fine specimens of the Patagonian race, looking smart in the morning when they came into town, had repented before night of ever having seen a white man, so beastly drunk were they, to say nothing about the peltry of which they had been robbed. 
The port at that time was free, but a custom-house was in course of construction, and when it is finished port and tariff dues are to be collected. A soldier police guarded the place, and a sort of vigilante force besides took down its guns now and then. But as a general thing to my mind, whenever an execution was made they killed the wrong man. Just previous to my arrival, the governor, himself of a jovial turn of mind, had sent a party of young bloods to foray a Fuegian settlement, and wipe out what they could of it, on account of the recent massacre of a schooner's crew somewhere else. Although the place was quite newsy, and supported two papers, dailies, I think, the port captain, a Chilean naval officer, advised me to ship hands to fight Indians in the strait further west, and spoke of my stopping until a gunboat should be going through, which would give me a tow. After canvassing the place, however, I found only one man willing to embark, and he on condition that I should ship another, moon and a dog. But as no one else was willing to come along, and as I drew the line at dogs, I said no more about the matter, but simply loaded my guns. At this point in my dilemma, Captain Pedro Samblick, a good Austrian of large experience coming along, gave me a bag of carpet-tacks, worth more than all the fighting men and dogs of Tierra del Fuego. I protested that I had no use for carpet-tacks on board. Samblick smiled at my want of experience, and maintained stoutly that I would have use for them. "'You must use them with discretion,' he said. "'That is to say, don't step on them yourself.' With this remote hint about the use of the tax, I got on all right, and saw the way to maintaining clear decks at night, without the care of watching. Samblick was greatly interested in my journey, and after giving me the tax he put on board bags of biscuits and a large quantity of smoked venison. He declared that my bread, which was ordinary sea-biscuits and easily broken, was not nutritious as his, which was so hard that I could break it only with a stout blow from a maul. Then he gave me, from his own sloop, a compass which was certainly better than mine, and offered to unbend her mainsail for me if I would accept it. Last of all, this large-hearted man brought out a bottle of Fuegian gold-dust from a place where it had been cached and begged me to help myself from it, for use further along on the voyage. But I felt sure of success without this draught on a friend, and I was right. Samblick's tacks, as it turned out, were of more value than gold. The port captain, finding that I was resolved to go on even alone, since there was no help for it, set up no further objection, but advised me, in case the savages tried to surround me with their canoes, to shoot straight, and begin to do it in time, but to avoid killing them if possible, which I heartily agreed to do. With these simple injunctions the officer gave me my port clearance free of charge, and I sailed on the same day, February 19, 1896. It was not without thoughts of strange and stirring adventure beyond all I had yet encountered, that I now sailed into the country and very core of the savage Fuegians. A fair wind from Sandy Point brought me on the first day to St. Nicholas Bay, where, so I was told, I might expect to meet savages. 
but seeing no signs of life I came to anchor in eight fathoms of water, where I lay all night under a high mountain. Here I had my first experience with the terrific squalls, called willy-bores, which extended from this point on through the strait to the Pacific. They were compressed gales of wind that Boreas handed down over the hills in chunks. A full-blown willy-war will throw a ship, even without sail on, over on her beam-ends, but, like other gales, they cease now and then, if only for a short time. February 20 was my birthday, and I found myself alone with hardly so much as a bird in sight off Cape Froward, the southernmost point of the continent of America. By daylight in the morning I was getting my ship under way for the bout ahead. The sloop held the wind fair while she ran thirty miles further on her course, which brought her to Fortescue Bay, and at once among the native signal-fires which blazed up now on all sides. Clouds flew over the mountain from the west all day. At night my good east wind failed, and in its stead a gale from the west soon came on. I gained anchorage at twelve o'clock that night, under the lee of a little island, and then prepared myself a cup of coffee, of which I was sorely in need. For, to tell the truth, hard beating in the heavy squalls and against the current had told on my strength. Finding that the anchor held, I drank my beverage, and named the place Coffee Island. It lies to the south of Charles Island, with only a narrow channel between. By daylight the next morning the spray was again under way, beating hard, but she came into a cove in Charles Island two and a half miles along on her course. Here she remained undisturbed two days, with both anchors down in a bed of kelp. Indeed she might have remained undisturbed indefinitely, had not the wind moderated, for during these two days it blew so hard that no boat could venture out on the strait, and the natives being away to other hunting-grounds, the island anchorage was safe. But at the end of the fierce windstorm, fair weather came, then I got my anchors, and again sailed out upon the strait. Canoes, manned by savages from Fortescue, now came in pursuit. The wind falling light, they gained on me rapidly, till coming within hail when they ceased paddling, and a bow-legged savage stood up and called to me, Yama schooner, yama schooner, which is their begging term. I said, No. Now I was not for letting on that I was alone, and so I stepped into the cabin, and passing through the hold came out at the forescuttle, changing my clothes as I went along. That made two men. Then the piece of bowsprit which I had sawed off at Buenos Aires, and which I had still on board, I arranged forward on the lookout, dressed as a seaman attaching a line by which I could pull it into motion. That made three of us, and we didn't want to yam a schooner. But for all that the savages came on faster than before. I saw that besides four at the paddles in the canoe nearest to me, there were others in the bottom, and that they were shifting hands often. At eighty yards I fired a shot across the bows of the nearest canoe, at which they all stopped, but only for a moment. Seeing that they persisted in coming nearer, I fired the second shot so close to the chap who wanted to Yamaskuna that he changed his mind quickly enough, and bellowed with fear, Bueno ho, via Isla! And sitting down in his canoe, he rubbed his starboard cat-head for some time. 
I was thinking of the good port captain's advice when I pulled the trigger, and must have aimed pretty straight. However, a miss was as good as a mile for Mr. Black Pedro, as he it was, and no other, a leader in several bloody massacres. He made for the island now, and the others followed him. I knew by his Spanish lingo and by his full beard that he was the villain I had named, a renegade mongrel and the worst murderer in Tierra del Fuego. The authorities have been in search of him for two years. The Fuegians are not bearded. So much for the first day among the savages. I came to anchor at midnight in Three Island Cove, about twenty miles along from Fortescue Bay. I saw on the opposite side of the strait signal fires, and heard the barking of dogs, but where I lay it was quite deserted by natives. I have always taken it as a sign that where I found birds sitting about, or seals on the rocks, I should not find savage Indians. Seals are never plentiful in these waters, but in Three Island Cove I saw one on the rocks, and other signs of the absence of savage men. On the next day the wind was again blowing a gale, and although she was in the lee of the land, the sloop dragged her anchors, so that I had to get her under way and beat further into the cove, where I came to in a landlocked pool. At another time or place this would have been a rash thing to do, and it was safe now, only from the fact that the gale which drove me to shelter would keep the Indians from crossing the strait. Seeing that this was the case, I went ashore with gun and axe on an island, where I could not in any event be surprised, and there felled trees and split about a cord of firewood, which loaded my boat several times. While I carried the wood, though I was morally sure there were no savages near, I never once went to or from the skiff without my gun. While I had that and a clear field of over eighty yards about me, I felt safe. The trees on the island, very scattering, were a sort of beech and a stunted cedar, both of which made good fuel. Even the green limbs of the beech, which seemed to possess a resinous quality, burned readily in my great drum-stove. I have described my method of wooding up in detail, that the reader who has kindly borne with me so far may see that in this, as in all other particulars of my voyage, I took great care against all kinds of surprises, whether by animals or by the elements. In the Strait of Magellan the greatest vigilance was necessary. In this instance I reasoned that I had all about me the greatest danger of the whole voyage, the treachery of cunning savages, for which I must be particularly on the alert. The spray sailed from Three Island Cove in the morning after the gale went down, but was glad to return for shelter from another sudden gale. Sailing again on the following day, she fetched Bourges Bay, a few miles on her course, where vessels had anchored from time to time, and had nailed boards on the trees ashore, with name and date of harbouring carved or painted. Nothing else could I see to indicate the civilised man had ever been before. I had taken a survey of the gloomy place with my spy-glass, and was getting my boat out to land and take notes, when the Chilean gunboat Humel came in, and officers coming on board advised me to leave the place at once, a thing that required little eloquence to persuade me to do. I accepted the captain's kind offer of a tow to the next anchorage, at the place called Notch Cove, eight miles further along, where I should be clear of the worst of the Fuegians.
We made anchorage at the cove about dark that night, while the wind came down in fierce willy-wars from the mountains. An instance of Magellan weather was afforded when the Hummel, a well-appointed gunboat of great power, after attempting on the following day to proceed on her voyage, was obliged by sheer force of the wind to return and take up anchorage again, and remain till the gale abated, and lucky she was to get back. Meeting this vessel was a little godsend. She was commanded and officered by high-class sailors and educated gentlemen. An entertainment that was gotten up on her, impromptu, at the notch, would be hard to beat anywhere. One of her midshipmen sang popular songs in French, German, and Spanish, and one, so he said, in Russian. If the audience did not know the lingo of one song from another, it was no drawback to the merriment. I was left alone the next day, for then the Hummel put out on her voyage, the gale having abated. I spent a day taking in wood and water. By the end of that time the weather was fine. Then I sailed from the desolate place. There is little more to be said concerning the spray's first passage through the strait that would differ from what I have already recorded. She anchored and weighed many times, and beat many days against the current, with now and then a slant for a few miles, till finally she gained anchorage and shelter for the night at Port Tamar, with Cape Pillar in sight to the west. Here I felt the throb of the great ocean that lay before me. I knew now that I had put a world behind me, and that I was opening out another world ahead. I had passed the haunts of savages. Great piles of granite mountains of bleak and lifeless aspect were now astern. On some of them not even a speck of moss had ever grown. There was an unfinished newness all about the land. On the hill back of Port Tamar a small beacon had been thrown up showing that some man had been there, but how could one tell but that he had died of loneliness and grief? In a bleak land is not the place to enjoy solitude. Throughout the whole of the strait west of Cape Froward I saw no animals except dogs owned by savages. These I saw often enough, and heard them yelping night and day. Birds were not plentiful. The scream of a wild fowl which I took for a loon sometimes startled me with its piercing cry. The steamboat duck, so called because it propels itself over the sea with its wings, and resembles a miniature side-wheel steamer in its motion, was sometimes seen scurrying on out of danger. It never flies, but hitting the water instead of the air with its wings, it moves faster than a rowboat or a canoe. The few fur seals I saw were very shy, and of fishes I saw next to none at all. I did not catch one. Indeed, I seldom or never put a hook over during the whole voyage. Here in the strait I found great abundance of mussels of an excellent quality. I fared sumptuously on them. There was a sort of swan, smaller than a muscovy duck, which might have been brought down with the gun. But in the loneliness of life about the dreary country, I found myself in no mood to make one life less, except in self-defence. End of chapter 7 Recording by Alan Chant in Tunbridge, Kent, England www.sevenoaksprep.kent.sch.uk
Chapter 8 of Sailing Alone Around the World. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Alan Chant. Sailing Alone Around the World by Joshua Slocum. Chapter 8. Consisting of From Cape Pillar into the Pacific. Driven by a tempest towards Cape Horn, Captain Slocum's greatest sea adventure, reaching the strait again by way of Coburn Channel, some savages find the carpet tax, danger from firebrands, a series of fierce willy wars, again sailing westward. It was the 3rd of March when the spray sailed from Port Tamar direct for Cape Pillar, with the wind from the northeast, which I fervently hoped might hold till she cleared the land. But there was no such good luck in store. It soon began to rain and thicken in the northwest, boding no good. The spray neared Cape Pillar rapidly, and nothing loath, plunged into the Pacific Ocean at once, taking her first bath of it in the gathering storm. There was no turning back, even had I wished to do so, for the land was now shut out by the darkness of night. The wind freshened, and I took in a third reef. The sea was confused and treacherous. In such a time as this the old fisherman prayed, Remember, Lord, my ship is so small, and thy sea is so wide. I saw now only the gleaming crests of waves. They showed white teeth while the sloop balanced over them. "'Everything for an offing!' I cried, and to this end I carried on all the sail she would bear. She ran all night with a free sheet, but on the morning of March the 4th the wind shifted to south-west, then back suddenly to north-west and blew with terrific force. The spray stripped of her sails then bore off under bare poles. No ship in the world could have stood up against so violent a gale. Knowing that this storm might continue for many days, and that it would be impossible to work back to the westward along the coast outside of Tierra del Fuego, there seemed nothing to do but to keep on and go east about after all. Anyhow, for my present safety, the only course lay in keeping her before the wind. And so she drove southwest, as though about to round the horn, while the waves rose and fell and bellowed their never-ending story of the sea. But the hand that held these held also the spray. She was running now with a reefed forestaysail, the sheets flat amidships, I paid out two long ropes to steady her course, and to break combing seas astern, and I lashed the helm amidship. In this trim she ran before it, shipping never a sea. Even while the storm raged at its worst, my ship was wholesome and noble. My mind as to her seaworthiness was put to ease for A. When all had been done that I could do for the safety of the vessel, I got into the fore-scuttle between seas, and prepared a pot of coffee over a wood-fire, and made a good Irish stew. Then, as before, and afterwards on the spray, I insisted on warm meals. In the tide-race off Cape Pillar, however, 
where the sea was marvellously high, uneven, and crooked, my appetite was slim, and for a time I postponed cooking. Confidentially, I was seasick. The first day of the storm gave the spray her actual test in the worst sea that Cape Horn or its wild regions could afford, and in no part of the world could a rougher sea be found than at this particular point, namely, off Cape Pillar, the grim sentinel of the Horn. Further offshore, while the sea was majestic, there was less apprehension of danger. There the spray rode, now like a bird on the crest of a wave, and now like a waif deep down in the hollow between seas, and so she drove on. Whole days passed, counted as other days, but with always a thrill, yes, of delight. On the fourth day of the gale, rapidly nearing the pitch of Cape Horn, I inspected my chart, and pricked off the course and distance to Port Stanley, in the Falkland Islands, where I might find my way and refit, when I saw, through a rift in the clouds, a high mountain, about seven leagues away on the port beam. The fierce edge of the gale by this time had blown off, and I had already bent a square-sail on the boom in place of the mainsail, which was torn to rags. I hauled in the trailing ropes, hoisted this awkward sail reefed, the forestaysail being already set, and under this sail brought her at once on the wind, heading for the land, which appeared as an island in the sea. So it turned out to be, though not the one I had supposed. I was exultant over the prospect of once more entering the Strait of Magellan, and beating through again into the Pacific, for it was more than rough on the outside coast of Tierra del Fuego. It was indeed a mountainous sea. When the sloop was in the fiercest squalls, with only the reefed forestaysail set, even that small sail shook her from keelsome to truck when it shivered by the leech. Had I harboured the shadow of a doubt for her safety, it would have been that she might spring a leak in the garboard at the heel of the mast. But she never called me once to the pump. Under pressure of the smallest sail I could set, she made for the land like a racehorse, and steering her over the crests of the waves so that she might not trip was nice work. I stood at the helm now and made the most of it. Night closed in before the sloop reached the land, leaving her feeling the way in pitchy darkness. I saw breakers ahead before long. At this I wore ship and stood off shore, but was immediately startled by the tremendous roaring of breakers again ahead and on the lee bow. This puzzled me, for there should have been no broken water where I supposed myself to be. I kept off a good bit, then wore round, but, finding broken water there also, threw her head again offshore. In this way, among dangers, I spent the rest of the night. Hail and sleet in the fierce squalls cut my flesh till the blood trickled over my face. But what of that? It was daylight, and the sloop was in the midst of the milky way of the sea, which is northwest of Cape Horn, and it was the white breakers of a huge sea over sunken rocks which had threatened to engulf her through the night. It was Fury Island I had sighted and steered for, and what a panorama was before me now, and all around! 
It was not the time to complain of a broken skin. What could I do but fill away among the breakers, and find a channel between them, now that it was day? Since she had escaped the rocks through the night, surely she would find her way by daylight. This was the greatest sea-adventure of my life. God knows how my vessel escaped. The sloop at last reached inside of small islands that sheltered her in smooth water. Then I climbed the mast to survey the wild scene astern. The great naturalist Darwin looked over this seascape from the deck of the Beagle, and wrote in his journal, Any landsman seeing the Milky Way would have nightmare for a week. He might have added, or seaman, as well. The spray's good luck followed fast. I discovered, as she sailed among a labyrinth of islands, that she was in the Coburn Channel, which leads into the Strait of Magellan at a point opposite Cape Froward, and that she was already passing Thieves' Bay, suggestively named. And at night, March 8, behold, she was at anchor in a snug cove at the turn. Every heartbeat on the spray now counted thanks. Here I pondered on the events of the last few days, and, strangely enough, instead of feeling rested from sitting or lying down, I now began to feel jaded and worn. But a hot meal of venison stew soon put me right so that I could sleep. As drowsiness came on, I sprinkled the deck with tacks, and then I turned in, bearing in mind the advice of my old friend Samblick, that I was not to step on them myself. I saw to it that not a few of them stood business end up. For when the spray passed Thieves' Bay, two canoes had put out and followed in her wake, and there was no disguising the fact any longer that I was alone. Now it is well known that one cannot step on a tack without saying something about it. A pretty good Christian can whistle when he steps on the commercial end of a carpet tack, a savage will howl and claw the air. And that was just what happened that night about twelve o'clock, while I was asleep in the cabin, where the savages thought they had me, sloop and all, but changed their minds when they stepped on deck, for then they thought that I or somebody else had them. I had no need of a dog. They howled like a pack of hounds. I had hardly use for a gun. They jumped pell-mell, some into their canoes, and some into the sea, to cool off, I suppose, and there was a deal of free language over it as they went. I fired several guns when I came on deck, to let the rascals know that I was at home, and then I turned in again, feeling sure I should not be disturbed any more by people who left in so great a hurry. The Fuegians, being cruel, are naturally cowards. They regard a rifle with superstitious fear. The only real danger one could see that might come from their quarter would be from allowing them to surround one within bowshot, or to anchor within range where they might lie in ambush. As for their coming on deck at night, even if I had not put tacks about, I could have cleared them off by shots from the cabin and hold. 
I always keep a quantity of ammunition within reach in the hold, and in the cabin, and in the forepeak, so that retreating to any of these places I could hold the fort simply by shooting up through the deck. Perhaps the greatest danger to be apprehended was from the use of fire. Every canoe carries fire. Nothing is thought of that, for it is their custom to communicate by smoke signals. The harmless brand that lies smouldering in the bottom of one of their canoes might be ablaze in one's cabin if he were not on the alert. The port captain of Sandy Point warned me particularly of this danger. Only a short time before they had fired a Chilean gunboat by throwing brands in through the stern windows of the cabin. The spray had no openings in the cabin or deck, except two scuttles, and these were guarded by fastenings which could not be undone without waking me if I were asleep. On the morning of the ninth, after a refreshing rest and a warm breakfast, and after I had swept the deck of tacks, I got out what spare canvas there was on board, and began to sew the pieces together in the shape of a peak for my square mainsail, the tarpaulin. The day to all appearances promised fine weather and light winds. But appearances in Tierra del Fuego do not always count. While I was wondering why no trees grew on the slope abreast of the anchorage, half-minded to lay by the sail-making and land with my gun for some game, and to inspect a white boulder on the beach near the brook, a willy-war came down with such terrific force as to carry the spray, with two anchors down, like a feather out of the cove, and away into deep water. No wonder trees did not grow on the side of that hill. Great Boreas! A tree would need all its roots to hold on against such a furious wind. From the cove to the nearest land to Leward was a long drift, however and I had ample time to weigh both anchors before the sloop came near any danger. And so no harm came of it. I saw no more savages that day or the next. They probably had some sign by which they knew of the coming willy-wars. At least they were wise in not being afloat even on the second day, for I had no sooner gotten to work at sail-making again, after the anchor was down, than the wind, as on the day before, picked the sloop up, and flung her seaward with a vengeance, anchor and all, as before. This fierce wind, usual to the Magellan country, continued on through the day, and swept the sloop by several miles of steep bluffs and precipices overhanging a bold shore of wild and uninviting appearance. I was not sorry to get away from it, though in doing so it was no Elysian shore to which I shaped my course. I kept on sailing in hope, since I had no choice but to go on, heading across for St. Nicholas Bay, where I had cast anchor February 19. It was now the 10th of March. Upon reaching the bay the second time, I had circumnavigated the wildest part of desolate Tierra del Fuego. But the spray had not yet arrived at St. Nicholas, and by the merest accident her bones were saved from resting there when she did arrive. The parting of a stasal sheet in a willy-war, when the sea was turbulent and she was plunging into the storm, brought me forward to see instantly a dark cliff ahead, and breakers so close under the bows that I felt surely lost, and in my thoughts cried, 
Is the hand of fate against me after all, leading me in the end to this dark spot? I sprang aft again, unheeding the flapping sail, and threw the wheel over, expecting, as the sloop came down into the hollow of a wave, to feel her timbers smash under me on the rocks. But at the touch of her helm she swung clear of the danger, and in the next moment she was in the lee of the land. It was a small island in the middle of the bay for which the sloop had been steering, and which she made with such unerring aim as nearly to run it down. Further along the bay was the anchorage, which I managed to reach, but before I could get the anchor down another school carried the sloop and whirled her round like a top and carried her away altogether to leeward of the bay. Still farther to leeward was a great headland, and I bore off for that. This was retracing my course towards Sandy Point, for the gale was from the south-west. I had the sloop soon under good control, however, and in a short time rounded to under the lee of a mountain, where the sea was as smooth as a mill-pond, and the sails flapped and hung limp while she carried her way close in. Here, I thought, I would anchor and rest till morning, the depth being eight fathoms very close to the shore. But it was interesting to see, as I let go the anchor, that it did not reach the bottom before another willy-war struck down from the mountain and carried the sloop off faster than I could pay out cable. Therefore, instead of resting, I had to man the windlass, and heave up the anchor with fifty fathoms of cable hanging up and down in deep water. This was in that part of the strait called Famine Reach. Dismal Famine Reach! On the sloop's crab windlass I worked the rest of the night, thinking how much easier it was for me when I could say, Do that thing or the other, and now doing it all myself. But I hove away and sang the old chants that I sang when I was a sailor. Within the last few days I had passed through much, and was now thankful that my state was no worse. It was daybreak when the anchor was at the hawse, by this time the wind had gone down, and Cat's paws took the place of Williwaw's, while the sloop drifted slowly towards Sandy Point. She came within sight of ships at anchor in the roads, and I was more than half-minded to put in for new sails. But the wind coming out from the north-east, which was fair for the other direction, I turned the prow of the spray westwards once more for the Pacific, to traverse a second time the second half of my course through the strait. End of chapter 8 Recording by Alan Chant in Tunbridge, Kent, England www.sevenoaksprep.kent.sch.uk Chapter 9 of Sailing Alone Around the World This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Alan Chant Sailing Alone Around the World by Joshua Slocum Chapter 9 
consisting of repairing the spray's sails, savages and an obstreperous anchor, a spider fight, an encounter with Black Pedro, a visit to the steamship Columbia, on the defensive against a fleet of canoes, a record of voyages through the strait, a chance cargo of tallow. I was determined to rely on my own small resources to repair the damages of the great gale which drove me southward towards the Horn, after I had passed from the Strait of Magellan out into the Pacific, so when I had got back into the Strait by way of Coburn Channel, I did not proceed eastward for help at the Sandy Point settlement, but turning again into the northwestward reach of the strait, set to work with my palm and needle at every opportunity, when at anchor and when sailing. It was slow work, but little by little the square sail on the boom expanded to the dimensions of a serviceable mainsail, with a peak to it and a leech besides. If it were not the best-setting sail afloat, it was at least very strongly made, and would stand a hard blow. A ship, meeting the spray long afterwards, reported her as wearing a mainsail of some improved design, and patent reefer, but that was not the case. The spray for a few days after the storm enjoyed fine weather, and made fair time through the strait for the distance of twenty miles, which in these days of many adversities I called a good run. The weather, I say, was fine for a few days, but it brought little rest. Care for the safety of my vessel, and even for my own life, was in no wise lessened by the absence of heavy weather. Indeed, the peril was even greater, inasmuch as the savages on comparatively fine days ventured forth on their marauding excursions, and in boisterous weather disappeared from sight, their wretched canoes being frail, and undeserving the name of craft at all. This being so, I now enjoyed gales of wind as never before, and the spray was never long without them during her struggles about Cape Horn. I became in a measure inured to the life, and began to think that one more trip through the strait, if perchance the sloop should be blown off again, would make me the aggressor, and put the Fuegians entirely on the defensive. This feeling was forcibly borne in on me at Snug Bay where I anchored at grey morning, after passing Cape Froward, to find, when broad day appeared, that two canoes which I had eluded by sailing all night, were now entering the same bay stealthily under the shadow of the high headland. They were well manned, and the savages were well armed with spears and bows. At a shot from my rifle across the bows, both turned aside into a small creek out of range. In danger now of being flanked by the savages in the bush close aboard, I was obliged to hoist the sails, which I had barely lowered, and make across to the opposite side of the strait, a distance of six miles. But now I was put to my wit's end as to how I should weigh anchor, for through an accident to the windlass right here I could not budge it. However, I had set all sail and filled away, first hauling short by hand. The sloop carried her anchor away, as though it was meant to be always towed in this way underfoot, 
and with it she towed a ton or more of kelp from a reef in the bay, the wind blowing a wholesome breeze. Meanwhile I worked till blood started from my fingers, and with one eye over my shoulder for savages, I watched at the same time, and sent a bullet whistling whenever I saw a limb or a twig move, for I kept a gun always at hand, and an Indian appearing then within range would have been taken as a declaration of war. As it was, however, my own blood was all that was spilt, and from the trifling accident of sometimes breaking the flesh against a cleat or a pin which came in the way when I was in haste. Sea-cuts in my hands, from pulling on hard wet ropes, were sometimes painful and often bled freely, but these healed when I finally got away from the strait into fine weather. After clearing Snug Bay, I hauled the sloop to the wind, repaired the windlass, and hove the anchor to the hawse, catted it, and then stretched across to a port of refuge under a high mountain about six miles away, and came to in nine fathoms close under the face of a perpendicular cliff. Here my own voice answered back, and I named the place Echo Mountain. Seeing dead trees further along where the shore was broken, I made a landing for fuel, taking, besides my axe, a rifle which on these days I never left far from hand. But I saw no living thing here, except a small spider which had nested in a dry log, that I boated to the sloop. The conduct of this insect interested me now more than anything else around the wild place. In my cabin it met, oddly enough, a spider of its own size and species that had come all the way from Boston. A very civil little chap, too, but mighty spry. Well, the Fuegian threw up its antennae for a fight, but my little Bostonian downed it at once, then broke its legs, and pulled them off one by one so dexterously that in less than three minutes from the time the battle began, the Fuegian spider didn't know itself from a fly. I made haste the following morning to be under way after a night of wakefulness on the weird shore. Before weighing anchor, however, I prepared a cup of warm coffee over a smart wood fire in my great Montevideo stove. In the same fire was cremated the Fuegian spider, slain the day before by the little warrior from Boston which a Scots lady at Cape Town long after named Bruce, upon hearing of its prowess at Echo Mountain. The spray now reached away for Coffee Island, which I sighted on my birthday, February 20, 1896. There she encountered another gale that brought her in the lee of Great Charles Island for shelter. On a bluff point on Charles were signal fires, and a tribe of savages mustered here since my first trip through the strait, manned their canoes to put off for the sloop. It was not prudent to come to, the anchorage being within bowshot of the shore, which was thickly wooded, but I made signs that one canoe might come alongside, while the sloop ranged about under sail in the lee of the land. The others I motioned to keep off, and, incidentally, laid a smart Martini Henry rifle in sight, close at hand on the top of the cabin. In the canoe that came alongside, crying their never-ending begging word, Yamaskuna, were two squaws and one Indian, the hardest specimens of humanity I have ever seen in any of my travels. 
Yama schooner was their plaint when they pushed off from the shore, and Yama schooner it was when they got alongside. The squaws beckoned for food, while the Indian, a black-visaged savage, stood sulkily as if he took no interest at all in the matter. But on my turning my back for some biscuits and jerked beef for the squaws, the buck sprang on deck and confronted me, saying in Spanish jargon that we had met before. I thought I recognised the tone of his yama schooner, and his full beard identified him as the black Pedro, whom it was true I had met before. "'Where are the rest of the crew?' he asked, as he looked uneasily around, expecting hands, maybe, to come out of the fore-scuttle and deal him his just deserts for many murders. "'About three weeks ago,' he said, "'when you passed up here, I saw three men on board. Where are the other two? I answered him briefly that the same crew were still on board. But, said he, I see you are doing all the work. And with a leer, he added, as he glanced at the mainsail, Hombre valiente. I explained that I did all the work in the day, while the rest of the crew slept so that they would be fresh to watch for Indians at night. I was interested in the subtle cunning of this savage, knowing him as I did, perhaps better than he was aware. Even had I not been advised before I sailed from Sandy Point, I should have measured him for an arch-villain now. Moreover, one of the squaws, with that spark of kindliness which is somehow found in the breast of even the lowest savage, warned me by a sign to be on my guard, or Black Pedro would do me harm. There was no need of the warning, however, for I was on my guard from the first, and at that moment held a smart revolver in my hand ready for instant service. "'When you sailed through here before,' he said, "'you fired a shot at me,' adding with some warmth that it was muy malo, I affected not to understand, and said, "'You have lived at Sandy Point, have you not?' He answered frankly, "'Yes, and appeared delighted to meet one who had come from the dear old place.' "'At the mission?' I queried. "'Why, yes,' he replied, stepping forward as if to embrace an old friend. I motioned him back, for I did not share his flattering humour. "'And you know Captain Pedro Samblick?' continued I. "'Yes,' said the villain, who had killed a kinsman of Samblick. "'Yes, indeed. He is a great friend of mine.' "'I know it,' said I. Samblick had told me to shoot him on sight. Pointing to my rifle on the cabin, he wanted to know how many times it fired. "'Quantos?' said he. When I explained to him that the gun kept right on shooting— his jaw fell, and he spoke of getting away. I did not hinder him from going. I gave the squaws biscuits and beef, and one of them gave me several lumps of tallow in exchange, and I think it worth mentioning that she did not offer me the smallest pieces, but with some extra trouble handed me the largest of all the pieces in the canoe. No Christian could have done more. Before pushing off from the sloop, the cunning savage asked for matches, and made as if to reach with the end of his spear the box I was about to give him. 
but I held it towards him on the muzzle of the rifle, the one that kept on shooting. The chap picked the box off the gun gingerly enough to be sure, but he jumped when I said, Quadeo, look out, at which the scores laughed and seemed not to be at all displeased. Perhaps the wretch had clubbed them that morning for not gathering mussels enough for his breakfast. There was a good understanding among us all. From Charles Island the spray crossed over to Fortescue Bay, where she anchored and spent a comfortable night under the lee of high land, while the wind howled outside. The bay was deserted now. They were Fortescue Indians whom I had seen at the island, and I felt quite sure they could not follow the spray in the present hard blow. Not to neglect a precaution, however, I sprinkled tacks on deck before I turned in. On the following day the loneliness of the place was broken by the appearance of a great steamship making for the anchorage with a lofty bearing. She was no Diego craft. I knew the sheer, the model, and the poise. I threw out my flag and directly saw the stars and stripes flung to the breeze from the great ship. The wind had then abated, and towards night the savages made their appearance from the island, going direct to the steamer to Yamaskuna. Then they came to the spray to beg more, or to steal all, declaring that they had got nothing from the steamer. Black Pedro had come alongside again. My own brother could not have been more delighted to see me, and he begged me to lend him my rifle to shoot a guanaco for me in the morning. I assured the fellow that if I remained there another day I would lend him the gun, but I had no mind to remain. I gave him a cooper's draw-knife and some other small implements which would be of service in canoe-making, and bade him be off. Under the cover of darkness that night I went to the steamer, which I found to be the Columbia, Captain Henderson, from New York, bound for San Francisco. I carried all my guns along with me, in case it should be necessary to fight my way back. In the chief mate of the Columbia, Mr. Hannibal, I found an old friend, and he referred affectionately to days in Manila when we were there together, he in the Southern Cross, and I in the Northern Light, both ships as beautiful as their names. The Columbia had an abundance of fresh stores on board. The captain gave his steward some orders, and I remember that the guileless young man asked me if I could manage, besides other things, a few cans of milk and a cheese. When I offered my Montevideo gold for the supplies, the captain roared like a lion and told me to put my money up. It was a glorious outfit of provisions of all kinds that I got. Returning to the spray, where I found all secure, I prepared for an early start in the morning. It was agreed that the steamer should blow her whistle for me, if first on the move. I watched the steamer off and on through the night for the pleasure alone of seeing her electric lights, a pleasing sight in contrast to the ordinary Fuegian canoe with a brand of fire in it. The sloop was the first under way, but the Columbia soon following passed and saluted as she went by. Had the captain given me his steamer, his company would have been no worse off than they were two or three months later. I read afterwards in a late California paper, The Columbia will be a total loss. On her second trip to Panama, 
she was wrecked on the rocks off the California coast. The spray was then beating against wind and current, as usual in the strait. At this point the tides from the Atlantic and the Pacific meet, and in the strait, as on the outside coast, their meeting makes a commotion of whirlpools and comas that in a gale of wind is dangerous to canoes and other frail craft. A few miles further along was a large steamer ashore, bottom up. Passing this place, the sloop ran into a streak of light wind, and then, a most remarkable condition for straight weather, it fell entirely calm. Signal fire sprang up at once on all sides, and then more than twenty canoes hove in sight, all heading for the spray. As they came within hail, their savage crews cried, Amigo, Yamascuna! Anclas, Aqui! Bueno Puerto, Aqui! and like scraps of Spanish mixed with their own jargon. I had no thought of anchoring in their good port. I hoisted the sloop's flag and fired a gun, all of which they might construe as a friendly salute or an invitation to come on. They drew up in a semicircle, but kept outside of eighty yards, which in self-defence would have been the death-line. In their mosquito fleet, was a ship's boat stolen probably from a murdered crew. Six savages paddled this rather awkwardly with the blades of oars which had been broken off. Two of the savages standing erect wore sea-boots, and this sustained the suspicion that they had fallen upon some luckless ship's crew, and also added a hint that they had already visited the spray's deck, and would now, if they could, try her again. Their sea-boots, I have no doubt, would have protected their feet and rendered carpet-tacks harmless. Paddling clumsily, they passed down the strait at a distance of a hundred yards from the sloop, in an off-hand manner, as if bound to Fortescue Bay. This I judged to be a piece of strategy, and so kept a sharp lookout over a small island which soon came in range between them and the sloop, completely hiding them from view, and towards which the spray was now drifting helplessly with the tide, and with every prospect of going on the rocks, for there was no anchorage, at least none that my cables would reach. And sure enough, I soon saw a movement in the grass just on top of the island, which is called Bonnet Island, and is one hundred and thirty-six feet high. I fired several shots over the place, but saw no other sign of the savages. It was they that had moved the grass, for as the sloop swept past the island, the rebound of the tide carrying her clear, there on the other side was the boat, surely enough exposing their cunning and treachery. A stiff breeze coming up suddenly now scattered the canoes, while it extricated the sloop from a dangerous position, albeit the wind, though friendly, was still ahead. The spray flogging against current and wind made Borgia Bay on the following morning, and cast anchor there for the second time. I would now, if I could, describe the moonlit scene on the strait at midnight, after I had cleared the savages and Bonnet Island. A heavy cloud-bank that had swept across the sky then cleared away, and the night became suddenly as light as day, or nearly so. A high mountain was mirrored in the channel ahead, and the spray sailing along with her shadow was as two sloops on the sea. The sloop being moored, I threw out my skiff and with axe and gun landed at the head of the cove, 
and filled a barrel of water from a stream. Then, as before, there was no sign of Indians at the place. Finding it quite deserted, I rambled about near the beach for an hour or more. The fine weather seemed somehow to add loneliness to the place, and when I came upon a spot where a grave was marked, I went no further. Returning to the head of the cove, I came to a sort of calvary, it appeared to me, where navigators carrying their cross had each set one up as a beacon to others coming after. They had anchored here and gone on, all except the one under the little mound. One of the simple marks, curiously enough, had been left there by the steamship Columbia, sister-ship to the Columbia, my neighbour of that morning. I read the names of many other vessels, some of them I copied in my journal, others were illegible. Many of the crosses had decayed and fallen, and many a hand that put them there I had known, many a hand now still. The air of depression was about the place, and I hurried back to the sloop to forget myself again in the voyage. Early the next morning I stood out from Borgia Bay, and off Cape Quad, where the wind fell light, I moored the sloop by kelp in twenty fathoms of water, and held her there a few hours against a three-knot current. That night I anchored in Langara Cove a few miles further along, where on the following day I discovered wreckage and goods washed up from the sea. I worked all day now, salving and boating off a cargo to the sloop. The bulk of the goods was tallow in casks and in lumps from which the casks had broken away, and embedded in the seaweed was a barrel of wine which I also towed alongside. I hoisted them all in with the throat halyards which I took to the windlass. The weight of some of the casks was a little over eight hundred pounds. There were no Indians about Langara. Evidently there had not been any since the great gale which had washed the wreckage on shore. Probably it was the same gale that drove the spray off Cape Horn from March 3 to 8. Hundreds of tons of kelp had been torn from beds in deep water, and rolled up into ridges on the beach. A specimen stalk which I found entire, roots, leaves, and all, measured 131 feet in length. At this place I filled a barrel of water at night, and on the following day sailed with a fair wind at last. I had not sailed far, however, when I came abreast of more tallow in a small cove, where I anchored and boated off as before. It rained and snowed hard all that day, and it was no light work carrying tallow in my arms over the boulders on the beach. But I worked on till the spray was loaded with a full cargo. I was happy then in the prospect of doing a good business further along the coast, for the habits of an old trader would come to the surface. I sailed from the cove about noon, greased from top to toe, while my vessel was tallowed from keelson to truck. My cabin, as well as the hold and deck, was stowed full of tallow, and all were thoroughly smeared. End of chapter 9 Recording by Alan Chant in Tunbridge, Kent, England www.sevenoaksprep.kent.sch.uk